0: Chain of events, cause and effect. We analyse what went right and what went wrong. As we discover that many outcomes can be predicted, planned for, and even prevented. I'm John Chiji, and this is Causality. Causality is entirely supported by you, our listeners. If you'd like to support us and keep the show ad-free, you can by becoming a premium supporter. Premium supporters have access to high-quality versions of episodes as well as bonus material from all of our shows not available anywhere else. Causality is also a podcasting 2.0-enhanced show with value support and a new listener-submitted soundbite option if you'd like to participate. Just visit engineer.network/causality to learn how you can help this show to continue to be made. Thank you. Instituto Goyano de Radioterapia, or IGR for short is a private radiation therapy clinic that was built in the 1970s and was located in Goiânia, near Praça Civica in Brazil. Goiânia has a population of approximately 700,000 people and is located 1,360 kilometres or 850 miles northwest of Rio de Janeiro. It had two radiation therapy machines, one that used cobalt-60 and another that used cesium-137. The Cesium-137 machine was a Span model F3000 and was designed by the Barrazzetti and Company of Milan in Italy, and this specific machine was built in the 1950s. Teletherapy machines that use a radioactive source mostly utilize a so-called international standard capsule that safely contains the radioactive material both for the transportation and to prevent leakage when not in use. By using a standard capsule design, they can be easily replaced as the radioactive sources deplete to a stage where they are no longer effective for radiation treatment. The standard capsule in this case was cylindrical, with a diameter of 50.6 mm, that's 2 inches, and a height of 47.5 mm, that's 1.87 inches. These international standard capsules have standardised dimensions common to most radiotherapy units. The radioactive source was caesium-137 in the form of highly soluble caesium chloride salt, Contained within an internal capsule made from stainless steel, which was then encased in a second external capsule also made from stainless steel. These capsules were then encapsulated further inside a lead source holder. The capsule has a narrow radiation aperture, whereby the source wheel is rotated to expose the radioactive contents through a narrow opening to the machine, which must also align with the machine's aperture and collimator to focus the radiation onto a target area on the patient. When not in use, the rotating shutter mechanism closes the radiation aperture. For additional protection, the machines are also heavily lined with lead surrounding the capsules. On the 17th of June 1971, cnen that's the National Commission of Nuclear Energy in Brazil, approved the importation of a Cesium-137 international standard capsule for the machine that would ultimately be purchased and installed at the IGR site in 1977. At the time of supply in 1971, the capsule was measured at 74 terabecquerels, noting that the half-life of cesium 137 is approximately 30 years and it contained approximately 93 grams, that's 3.3 ounces of material. For reference, one becquerel is defined as the activity of a quantity of radioactive material in which one nucleus decays per second. And for reference, 74 terabecquerels is about 19 billion times more than a household smoke detector. So that's quite a bit, and you'd expect it to be. Towards the end of 1985, the private radiotherapy clinic partnership dissolved, and one of the partners submitted a request to CNN to relocate the Cobalt 60 therapy machine to a new premises, about 4.5 kilometers, that's 2.8 miles, south of the existing facility. The future of the original site, however, was held in a legal dispute between the IGR and the Society of St. Vincent de Paul, acting for Santa Casa, that were the owners of the land at that time. The original premises were partly demolished, including several nearby properties, however parts of the clinic building remained, including the treatment room with the Span Model F3000 located within it. An attempt was made on the 4th of May 1987 by co-owner of IGR Dr. Carlos Figueiredo Bezaril to retrieve whatever items he could from the remains of the old clinic. However, the then director of the Institute of Insurance for Civil Servants, EPASGO, Mr. Sara Tanaguti involved the local police department and prevented him from accessing the property. IGR then wrote to CNN informing them of the situation, however no action was taken. The courts were aware prior to, however only officially from the 11th of September 1987, that there were radioactive materials present at the original IGR site. As a result of this, a security guard was eventually posted on the site to monitor the premises while the court order remained in place. Now, with the background and somewhat of the debacle leading up to this, let's talk about the incident itself. The court-ordered security guard did not present to work at the former IGR premises on Sunday morning on the 13th of September 1987. According to one media report, he had accompanied his family to the cinema, whereas another report indicated he was sent to a higher-priority incident at another nearby site. Either way, and for whatever reason, he wasn't there that day. Roberto dos Santos Alves, 22 years old, and Wagner Mota Pereira, 19 years old, entered the site unchallenged that morning, looking for anything of value that they could extract and potentially resell. They weren't familiar with medical equipment specifically. However, upon finding the therapy machine, they stripped down anything that appeared to be potentially valuable and managed to extract the cesium-137 capsule from the remaining therapy machine. They took it, along with other scrap items they'd extracted, in a wheelbarrow and walked to Mr. Alves' house that was only 500 metres or 550 yards away, just down the road really, in the same suburb. Later that day, both Mr. Alves and Mr. Pereira started vomiting and, the following morning, Mr. Pereira had a swollen hand, felt dizzy and developed diarrhoea. On Tuesday the 15th, Mr Pereira was diagnosed by a local doctor with an allergic reaction to consuming bad food and was prescribed with bed rest and a week off at home. By Friday the 18th, Mr Alves, working in his backyard under a mango tree and using a screwdriver, managed to remove the source wheel of the rotating shutter and punctured a 1mm wide source window, exposing the source material. The granular powder he began to extract from the capsule looked like it might be gunpowder so he attempted to light it. Nothing happened. That day, Mr. Alves sold the pieces of the rotating assembly to Mr. Devere Alves Ferreira, the manager of a nearby junkyard. That evening, Mr. Devere Ferreira noticed a blue glow coming from the capsule in the dim light, so he brought it into his house to show his wife, Maria Gabriela Ferreira. On Monday, the 21st of September, a friend of the family, Mr. Ernesto Fabiano, visited Mr. Ferreira and was able to remove some rice-grain-sized fragments from the capsule. Several of his extended family and friends applied the powder to their skins, as you might apply glitter for a glowing effect at night. During that week, Mrs. Ferreira developed vomiting and diarrhoea, and following a visit to Sao Lucas Hospital, was diagnosed the same way as Mr. Alves, with an allergic reaction to something she'd eaten, and was sent home to rest. Her mother spent two nights caring for her before returning to her home, inadvertently spreading more powder with her. Also during that week, employees at Mr. Ferreira's junkyard, Mr. Israel Baptista dos Santos, 22 years old, and Mr. Admirson Alves de Souza, 18 years old, spent significant time extracting the lead from the capsule. On Thursday, the 24th of September, Ivo Ferreira, Devere's brother, visited his brother's junkyard, having heard about the compound, and was given some fragments to take with him. Upon returning home, he let his daughter, Lidas Ferreira, play with a lump of it on the floor in their house. After playing with the cesium-137 powder, she proceeded to eat a boiled egg with her hands without washing the powder off first, inadvertently consuming some of the powder that was still stuck to her hands. Some reports stated that she intentionally put it on her sandwich, which she then consumed. Either way, she ingested some of the cesium-137. The six-year-old started vomiting only ten minutes later. On the 25th, Mr Ferriero sold both the lead and the remainder of the source assembly to another junkyard, Mr J's Old Iron, whilst on the 26th, an employee from yet another junkyard stole the shielding container from the machine at the still-abandoned clinic. By Monday the 28th of September, Mrs. Ferreira had concluded by watching her friends, family, and herself become ill after coming into contact with the glowing powder, that it was in fact the powder that was making everyone sick. She went with one of the employees from her husband's junkyard to the other junkyard that had purchased the remaining pass only three days earlier, retrieved them, and placed them in a bag. They then took the bag to Vigilancia Sanitaria, the Government Health Surveillance Department, taking the bus and visited a veterinarian, Dr. Paulo Montiru. During their visit, she became very animated, saying the dust was like a plague and was, I quote, killing his people, end quote, then left the bag on his desk as she left. After they had left his office, Dr. Montiru decided to relocate the bag to the sanitary surveillance yard and placed it on a chair by the wall for the remainder of the day. After leaving the health surveillance building, the pair travelled to the hospital Sao Lucas and Centro de Saúde Juárez Barbosa and were directed to the HDT, that's the hospital for tropical diseases. They weren't the first people to have displayed similar symptoms in recent days. One HDT doctor suspected the skin lesions were caused by exposure to radiation and contacted the superintendent of the HDT Toxicological Information Centre. Upon learning that the superintendent had recently spoken to Dr. Montiru about the suspicious bag, they agreed to call a specialist. The Department of the Environment of Goiás State, Samargo for short, appointed Mr. Walter Mendez Ferreira, a licensed medical physicist who was no relation to the junkyard owner, as he was currently visiting Goiânia and was nearby at the time. On Tuesday the 29th of September, Mr. Walter Ferreira obtained a scintillation detector on loan from the government agency Nucelbras. A scintillation detector is normally used for geological purposes and therefore is very, very sensitive. As he left the building, he gave the detector a brief test, and on switching it on, the meter went immediately to maximum deflection on the needle. Not believing the result could be correct and suspecting the meter was in fact effective, he went back to try a second and different meter only to get exactly the same result. Dr. Montero had still not been near the bag, still very concerned about its contents as a result of his visit the previous day by Mrs. Ferreira that he'd called the Fire Brigade to get rid of the bag for him. Upon arriving, Mr. Walter Ferreira argued with the Fire Brigade on site and was able to prevent them from throwing the bag into the nearby river. Instead, he ordered the evacuation of the building and posted police and fire brigade at the entrances to prevent people re-entering while he and Dr. Montiru went to Mr. Ferreira's junkyard. By lunchtime, and after finding off-the-scale readings, they were both convinced the owner, workers and family to leave the area for their own safety. It took nearly two hours to convince the Secretary of Health of Guy State that their findings were serious and a large-scale evacuation would be required. Finally, the director of CNN was contacted and brought up to speed. From here on, we'll only touch on the most significant points as CNN moved very quickly and lots of things happened in parallel. Through interviews and with those showing symptoms, family members and workers from the junkyards, a plan was drawn up, mapping the contamination from the source to all the people and locations contaminated by Cesium-137. The police, fire and civil defence forces were mobilised and the Olympic Stadium was taken over to isolate and screen patients as they were traced. Temporary tents were erected, though many of those were blown over in a storm several days later. Medical priority was given to the 11 people that showed the most serious symptoms. However, the local staff had limited knowledge, limited medication, and no experience with treating radiation exposure. Patients were scattered to different hospitals that did have more experience the following week. Let's talk a little bit about the victims. One of the complexities of radiation is that different people handle it differently, and different kinds of radiation affect the body at different rates and in different ways. For reference, grays are the international standard unit for ionizing radiation dosage, and it's one joule of radiation per kilogram of matter. They replaced rads in 1975, and as a point of reference, grays are used commonly to assess localized tissue effects of radiation, such as a whole body exposure to five grays in a short time period will lead to death on average about two weeks from exposure. In many cases, a lesser cumulative dose becomes extremely difficult to predict lethality as different people will respond in different ways. With that bit of background, in the Goiânia incident, a total of four people lost their lives. On Friday the 23rd of October 1987, six-year-old Miss Leeds das Neves Ferreira, the daughter of Eva Ferreira, died. She had an estimated exposure of six grays of radiation. When the international team arrived to treat her, she was discovered confined to an isolated room in the hospital because the local hospital staff were too afraid to be near her. Her upper body was badly swollen, she had lost her hair, and had severe kidney and lung damage. She was buried in a common cemetery in Goyonia in a specially built fiberglass coffin lined with lead. On the day of her burial, a riot of an estimated 2,000 people in and around the cemetery tried to prevent her from being buried using stones and bricks to block the road into the cemetery. They were afraid that her corpse would poison all of the surrounding land, but were eventually disbanded by local authorities. Also, on Friday the 23rd of October, Mrs. Maria Gabriela Ferreira, aged 37, wife of scrapyard owner Devere Ferreira, and the person that had raised the alarm about the powder, died in hospital from radiation exposure. She had become sick three days after coming into contact with the powder and had an estimated exposure of 5.7 grays of radiation. Her condition worsened in her final days, losing her hair and suffering mental confusion, diarrhoea, and passed away five weeks after her initial exposure in the Marsilio Diaz Naval Hospital. On Tuesday the 27th of October, Mr. Israel Baptista dos Santos, age 22, was also an employee of Dever Ferreira, who worked on the radioactive source primarily to extract the lead also died. He had an estimated exposure of 4.5 grays of radiation. He developed respiratory and lymphatic complications and passed away 6 days after he was admitted to hospital. On Wednesday the 28th of October 1987, Mr. Admilson Alves de Souza, aged 18, was an employee also of de Ver Ferreiras, who was also working on the radioactive source, died. He had an estimated exposure of 5.3 grays of radiation. He developed lung damage, internal bleeding, and heart damage. Mr Santos and Mr D'Souza were buried under armed guard, with the cemetery flanked by riot police in full riot gear, far better prepared this time following the previous riot. It was found that out of the 112,000 people examined following the incident, about 250 were found to have had above-background levels of radiation on their body, with about half of those found to have radiation within their body. There were no other documented casualties, though many people were sick for weeks or months following their exposure. In 2007, the Oswaldo Cruz Foundation conducted a study in Guayernia, and found that there was no statistically significant difference in cesium-137-related illnesses for those in Goiânia relative to the rest of the population. Counter to this, in 2012, the Asociación de Vítimas de Cesio-137 which translated is the Association of Victims of Cesium-137, an organization formed in late 1987 by Mr. Odesson Ferreira, stated that after 25 years approximately 1,600 people had been directly affected and 104 people had died from cancers or other radiation exposure-related illnesses. The lack of independent analysis and accurate record keeping makes any accurate determination of those impacted by this accident effectively impossible to be certain about. Let's talk about the cleanup. On the 7th and 8th of October, an aerial survey by helicopter, followed by a ground search based on its findings, assisted in tracking the primary sources of radiation through the local area. Patients were thoroughly contact traced, tracked down, and tested for exposure as well. The primary focus of decontamination were the junkyards, where the source assembly was broken apart and also where the source capsule had been ruptured, followed by the residences of the people most affected. These locations were within an area of about one square kilometre in the Aeroporto, Central and Ferrovianos districts of Goyernia. It took 11 weeks to survey and decontaminate the most contaminated sites in that area and three more months to decontaminate those areas with a low level of contamination. In total, some 370 cubic metres or 13,000 cubic feet of contaminated material, 12,500 drums of waste and 1,470 boxes of waste were removed from the area. That's a total of 13.5 tonnes of waste. A disposal site was finally chosen 20 kilometres or 12.5 miles outside of the city after a protracted debate among locals and councillors. During the investigation, it was not possible to determine the complete serial number of the cesium-137 capsule. However, based on supplier information and other indirect information, it was most likely produced at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, ORNL, facility in the United States of America in 1970. Let's talk about the survivors. Mr. Devere Ferreira suffered hair loss, had radiation damage to several internal organs, and was diagnosed with cancer. However, he ultimately died of cirrhosis of the liver. He had reportedly struggled to come to terms with the death of his wife and was reported to have become a heavy drinker in his final years as a result. Mr. Evo Ferreira was reportedly diagnosed with a prolonged depression and took his smoking habit to six packets a day, then ultimately dying of pulmonary emphysema in mid-2003. People from the local area were regularly shunned by other Brazilians in many ways, some hotels would spontaneously cancel reservations from travellers from the former contaminated area. Buses leaving from Goyonia were sometimes blockaded and prevented from entering other population centres entirely. During the cleanup, rental accommodation for those forced to leave their homes while they were being decontaminated were regularly denied out of fear of contamination themselves. There are reports of people being forced off public transport and in one documented case of an elderly man with scarring from recent skin cancers cut off his hands, being mistaken for having radiation burns from the incident, and was forced off of a local bus. Pretty unpleasant. In terms of the broader economic impact, though, the area was heavily based on agriculture, and following the incident the economy dropped by over 40%, and some reports claim it has never fully recovered even to this day. Let's talk about the aftermath. Criminal charges were brought against the doctors who owned IGR. They were charged with criminal negligence because they had originally been responsible for the safeguarding of the cesium 137 capsule. However, since it was the clinic which brought the substance, rather than the doctors themselves, they could not be held liable. One of the doctors owning IGR and the hospital physicist were, however, made to pay a fine for the condition of the building. The three physicians who owned and operated the clinic a former owner of IGR and the IGR physicists were all arrested and charged with inflicting fatal wounds. According to the inspection record, CNN hadn't inspected the facility for nearly a decade before the incident, far beyond the minimum requirement. That said, an inspection of the old clinic would have been unlikely to have been permitted when it was in dispute and of the new building would have found nothing of consequence relating to this incident. Having said that, though, under the terms of the operating license issued by CNN, a physicist and a physician from IGR are jointly responsible for ensuring compliance with the licence conditions. Part of that licence requires any significant change in the status of the equipment or the facilities has to be informally reported to the governing body. A special commission appointed by the Goyais legislature concluded that the owners of the clinic and CNN were jointly responsible. Initially, culpable homicide indictments were prepared against officials at three federal and state agencies, including the Director of Nuclear Installations of CNN and the Coordinator for Health Inspection in the state of Goiás. The Federal Court of Justice for the state of Goiás determined that Mr. Wagner Pereira and Mr. Roberto Alves, the two people that had taken the capsule from the derelict IGR clinic building, could not be charged with theft. For an item to be stolen, by law, that item had to belong to someone else first, and the radiotherapy machine didn't belong to anyone, according to the court, as it had been effectively abandoned. Not sure I agree with that. The building was in dispute, it wasn't abandoned, but I digress. The three doctors that treated Mr. Wagner, Gabriella and Ryder, and the physicist at IGR were the only people convicted. The IGR physicist was found guilty of manslaughter and causing bodily harm for having left the hazardous material unprotected as well as failing to inform CNN of the change of premises under their license conditions. The doctors were found guilty of negligence and manslaughter causing bodily harm for misdiagnosing their patients. On the 29th of July 1992, the four men were sentenced to three years in prison, but the judge reduced the penalty to prohibition to practice their respective professions, community service, and a fine, of 100,000 real. That's Brazilian real. Both the prosecution and the defence attorneys appealed the sentence and, on the 19th of June 1995, the fines were waived and the prison term was changed to home confinement. In the years that followed, Cobalt-60 and Linax have been more preferred over Cesium-137 for different kinds and depths of cancer treatments. In the case of the former, It's stable as a solid, making it easier to contain, and in the latter, it's a different method of radiation treatment entirely with no radioactive source. Caesium is also a metal, and like mercury, it's a liquid at only 28 degrees Celsius, that's 83 Fahrenheit, and it's highly reactive when it comes into contact with water, which is why it's most stable in a salt form, in this case caesium chloride. This incident was one of the factors that drove the use of cesium-137 for radiation treatment out of common use, since if it does get out, it spreads very easily. It wasn't until 2000 that CNN was ordered by the Federal Court of Guy Ice to pay compensation of 1.3 million real, that's three quarters of a million US dollars, to the victims of the incident, down to their third generation of descendants. So what do we learn from all this? There is little publicly available information about what happened inside CNN between 1985 and 1987. No explanation about why they appear to do nothing in the four-month period about being informed of the machine's situation to when the theft took place. No explanation about why, when contacted by the dean of the hospital treating some of the patients with radiation sickness, that the call was not acted upon. One of the roles of CNN was to protect the public from radioactive sources to regulate them, and they didn't appear to be regulating them much in Go Ice at the time. In this incident, it's interesting that the move to the new premises happened almost two years before a court ordered security guard was assigned to guard and caretake the old property. It's also interesting that the court ordered security guard had only been assigned to the site for a few days prior to the scavengers making off with the radioactive material. That building had been half demolished for many, many months at that stage. You have to wonder whether the introduction of the guard signalled to local residents that there must be something of value located inside those premises. Mr Alves was reported as saying he had heard rumours that valuable equipment had been left in the disused clinic only days before they stole it. If not for that, they might have left it alone, as they had effectively done for the prior two years since the site was abandoned. The facility should have been better secured, though any fence is no match for some bolt cutters, and given the theft occurred during daylight, it probably wouldn't have slowed them down much. Mr. Odesson Alves Ferreira, one of Mr. Devere Ferreira's brothers, was also exposed to cesium-137. He was 32 years old at the time, and a bus driver when he encountered it. Seeing what happened to his family, and getting permanent scarring on his hands where he held the powder himself, had turned him into an activist on behalf of the victims. He has been raising awareness through public speaking in schools, universities, and with the press. Now 67 years old, in an interview, he stated, and I quote, Nobody has been trained properly and the necessary revisions are not carried out. Not even the Health Surveillance Agency checks radiological equipment in clinics, end quote. The few policy changes that were made following the incident, based on his assessment, have been written and verbal promises with very little observable action being taken. Certainly, this was a tragic incident, a set of circumstances that led to an unlikely outcome. Or perhaps it wasn't so unlikely. Because in March 1962, decades earlier, in Mexico City, a 10-year-old boy, scrounging at the local waste dump or tip, found a cobalt-60 source capsule that had been improperly disposed of. In December 1983, in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, a cobalt sixty capsule was salvaged from a discarded radiation therapy machine, which ultimately contaminated steel, that was then used to manufacture kitchen table legs and reinforcing bars for concrete, which was then shipped to North America. But then in nineteen eighty seven there was this incident. But that's okay though, because you know we've learned our lesson from history, didn't we? Well, in January of two thousand, in Samut Prakan, near Bangkok in Thailand, An old radiation machine with a cobalt-60 source was sold to a scrap metal dealer, who then released the radioactive substances when processing it. In 2010, an old gamma irradiator from the chemistry department of the Delhi University in New Delhi was sold to a scrap metal dealer, and its cobalt-60 source was opened as it was being processed. Now, I'm not sure, though. There's not much of a pattern there, is there? Maybe I'm missing something. Radioactivity is dangerous to living organisms like us obviously. And it's a strange thing to me that something so deadly, but focused and harnessed on bad tissue can actually save lives. And that's a good thing for sure. If we want to look at this as I always try to, from the perspective of how could this have been prevented, then the most obvious is education of the doctors, of the people in the area, followed by stricter controls of radioactive materials. The problem though, with the education piece is, well, what's the move here? There are many parts of the world where the standard of education isn't that high because generally it doesn't need to be in order to run a farm or a junkyard, for example. Teaching people about radiation and radioactive materials is something they're unlikely to ever need until something like this happens. The two men that stole the capsule didn't even recognize the international symbol for radioactivity. That's the yellow trifoil thing, you know? That was clearly marked on the machine. They didn't recognize it. It's harder to forgive the doctors, though, for their misdiagnoses the effects of radiation are taught in medical schools the world over as are the benefits of radiation therapy in treating cancers the only thing i can think of is that they didn't think it was a plausible diagnosis given where they lived more consultation with each other as more cases had come in probably would have helped if a concerned mother could put the pieces together and figure it out with no medical training so should they have been able to finally though There's regulation, and that terrible part is that the regulations here did exist. They just weren't monitored or enforced. Had CNN kept better tracking of facilities with hazardous materials, they would have followed up with IGR much sooner. Had IGR taken their responsibilities under the legislation more seriously, when they moved to their new premises, they would have made full disclosure about the remaining machine at the old premises when they moved. They clearly knew the machine was missing because they went back for it, or they tried to. IGR may have been able to use CNN's authority to gain access to the property, even under a court order, to safely remove the machine, but that didn't happen. An interesting comment from Ms. Enan Borges Moreira, roughly translated was, and I quote, Some blame must rest with our society, which allows a low class of people to scavenge in order to live, end quote. Certainly, that's an angle I hadn't considered. But that's also a socio-economic complexity. That banning the sale of scrap materials is something that I'm not aware of any country ever doing. So, for me, at least, the single moment that could have prevented this entire sequence of events from occurring was the confrontation when Doctor Bezirel from IGR tried to retrieve the radioactive capsule when Mr. Tanajit from Epazgo prevented him from doing so. If you're in a position where you're the gatekeeper and someone else is really trying to get access, try and understand why. Epazgo was simply enforcing a court order without really thinking about it. I mean, it's the easiest thing to do. If you're in a position like that, maybe take the time to understand the ask before you just reject it. Maybe, as a last resort, though, if you're in the scrap metal business, maybe investing in a Geiger counter is a good catch all and won't go astray. Might save your life one day. Hmm. How can that be the conclusion, though? The truth is that radioactivity is dangerous it can be used for good, and most of the time it is, but we need to take great care in tracking it and controlling its use. Because if we don't, and it gets out, people just die. If you're enjoying Causality and you'd like to support us and keep the show ad-free, you can by becoming a premium supporter. Just visit engineer.dotnetwork/causality to learn how you can help this show to continue to be made. Thank you. A big thank you to all of our supporters and a special thank you to our silver producers Mitch Bielger, Kevin Koch, Lesley, Shane O'Neill, Jared, Joel Maher, Katerina Will, Dave Jones and Kellen Fredelius Fujimoto and an extra special thank you to both of our gold producers Stephen Bridle and our gold producer known only as R. Causality is heavily researched and links to all materials used for the creation of this episode are contained in the show notes. You can find them in the text of the episode description of your podcast player or on our website. Causality is a podcasting 2.0 enhanced show, and with the right podcast player, you'll have episode locations, enhanced chapters, and real-time subtitles on select episodes. And you can also stream Satoshis and Boost with a message if you like. There's details on how, along with the Boostergram leaderboard, on our website. Causality now has support for listener-submitted sound bites From any episode, you can create and email in for inclusion on the website and in Podcasting 2.0-compliant apps if you'd like to make a credited submission. Visit engineer.network forward slash create soundbite, all one word, to learn more. You can follow me on the Fediverse at chidgy at engineer.space, on Twitter at John Chiji or one word, or the network at engineered underscore net. This was Causality. I'm John Chidgy. Thanks so much for listening. Many thanks to silver producer Shane O'Neill from Sydney, Australia for writing in and requesting this topic and bringing it to my attention.